Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Joining me uh, right now is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. She just wrote a piece, and I was like, I got to have her on to talk about it because many of you know I was in publishing for 10 years. 35 books, three New York Times bestsellers as a publisher, and now it is good to be black, apparently. Uh, her article is entitled, let me get the, the, the title, Inside the Push to Diversify the Book Business. Let me welcome Marcella Valdez to the Karen Hunter Show. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me to come. Thank you for coming through. Now, tell us what you know about uh, this push for diversity. What's, what's the impetus? Well, this most recent push, because uh, the article talks about two previous ones, but the most recent push began in the summer of 2020, um, when there was this big national reckoning, as you know, in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And one of the areas uh, that was sort of going through a self-examination was book publishing. And they sort of had to begin to reckon with the fact that it was almost 90% white in its staffing. And uh, there was, for example, in June, there was a, a thousand people in the book publishing industry signed up for a day of action to, prote- to protest the historical failure of the industry to hire and retain black editors. Yeah. Uh, that was the beginning of this new one. Yeah. So as you know, I, I had an imprint at Simon & Schuster, Karen Hunter Books, Karen Hunter Publishing. And I remember going to a sales meeting and I walk in the room and it's a sea of white. Now, I'm a publisher. Not I happen to be black, but I had a book that I was um, um, trying to sell with Shawnee O'Neill, who's the ex-wife of Shaquille O'Neal. It was a book about her raising her children. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of talk in the room about how to sell it. And it was a lot of talk about which black markets. And I was like, well, you didn't do that with the Battle Hymn of the T- Tiger Mom. You didn't just sell that to the Asian market. It was a book about mothering. Why does she have to be in the black category? She's a mother of a one of the most recognizable figures, her, the children that she's talking about, to Sha- Shaquille O'Neal. Why is this a black book? And yeah, I'm gonna, I wish well, I could say yeah. that's unusual. Yeah, but... no, and it wasn't. <laughs> and, it, and and I... They 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 were really upset because, you know, I lit everybody up in there. I was like, I don't know how you're able to sell my books when you have no understanding of what this is, you know, when you're looking at it through this racial lens. And they were so offended afterwards. Like I heard in the, you know, in the hallways, nobody said anything to me in the room, which is another thing, the passive aggressive way in which folk uh, of privilege who are super mediocre and don't know what they're really doing. Don't even have the courage to confront people when they're being challenged or to even ask questions to maybe learn more. So I'm, you know, I, I had to get that off my chest, Marcella, but you know, no, uh, I want to hear all your war stories. I'm sure that you have a lot because yeah. you were in and around that industry for a long time. And there's, I mean, I certainly heard a lot of stories when I was reporting this piece and a lot of them didn't make it into the piece. Cause I was focusing just on that thing that you're putting your finger on is like the business end of it. Okay, we can talk about social injustice, we can talk about rights and wrong, but it's also your job is to sell things. So you'd think that you would um, make greater big efforts to make your audience bigger instead of always thinking, why would you take a book like that and think, well, let's narrow it down to this little audience that might be interested in it. No, of course not. You want to get as big an audience as possible of 
you know, every color of the rainbow and every ethnicity interested in this. I also, yes, I um, want to hear more. <laughs> no, so when I first, uh, cause I, before I came to Simon and Schuster, I had five New York times bestsellers for a bunch of different publishers, St. Martin's press, random house, uh, you know, d- did about three books, but I'd done a couple of three books with Simon and Schuster. One was Wendy Williams. Uh, and that was a bestseller and a, and a couple others. And so I approached him about doing an imprint and, you know, Simon and Schuster has all of these different imprints, you know, at the time before it was gallery, it was pocket. It was, you know, have mm-hmm. all of these. And, um, Atria was part of that. And they gave me the choice, um, Carolyn Reedy, rest in power. Uh, she, at least, you know, it was like, okay, here, are, here are two imprints that you talk to both of the Hesity's imprints. So I had lunch with both of them. And one of the one that I chose, I chose her because she said to me over lunch, I don't know anything about your people. So do whatever you want. I was like, I like that. I I want you not to be involved. But that ended up being a mistake to me, mm. you know, looking back on it, because what I thought would be autonomy ended up being uh, a battle to, mm. to convince somebody why this is valuable when you don't know anything about it. And I come out of the tradition of Toni Morrison, uh, who was a public, who was an editor who gave yes. us Angela Davis and Muhammad Ali and, you know, published all of these amazing books, including this, the black book, which I grew up that, that literally uh, that book behind me is I think 40 years old. It was a book on my coffee table in the house growing up. And so for me also Terry McMillan, how many yeah. millions of books does she sell? You know, and Elon Harris, who I got to publish his last book before he died, sold a hundred thousand books out of the truck of his car as an IBM salesman understood some things, 11 books in a row, more than a hundred thousand units, which you know how hard that is, but somehow this market, you know, Eric Jerome Dickey, Rashonda Tate's Billingsley, that somehow Kimberly, Kimberly Lawson Roby, this market is not viable. Like you really, and I got to fight for every single book. I bring you Janet Jackson under a million dollars. I got to fight for you to put my, I'm like, so it was, it was frustrating. Um, but also the racism was so palpable. It's like the, the, the ignorance, but it's willful. So that makes it, that turns it into racism. It's not just ignorance. Cause when you're being told something, you still don't want to do it. Then what's the resistance? Oh, okay. There's something more here. You don't find value in us. Sina, you're I think it's, Sorry. I think that that's part of the problem is that when you don't have the people who are staff, because you know, when you're inside a book, publishing house, you know, the authors come and go. The, you know, we, we think of them as being the most important part. And of course, in many ways they are, but the authors come and go on different seasons and the staff, they're the ones who are there year after year after year, which is why it's, it's not really enough to have Terry McMillan and be a best-selling author, or even Toni Morrison and the Nobel Prize. You need to have people who are part of the infrastructure um, in order to really make a, a profounder level of change. And that book, I noticed it right away, the black book on your shelf. I mean, that's a perfect example. Toni Morrison was working at Random House and she put together that book. And when she, I mentioned this in my article, when she you know, went to her, the other members of the editorial team at Random House, they said, she told in an interview to Hilton Halls that she thought that they, they said it was gonna be a disaster. They were like, who are we gonna sell this to? And she, and her reaction to Hilton Halls, which she, he records in the interview is, what are you talking about? My mother is on the cover of this book. I mean, the idea that you can't conceive of the audience for the product obviously limits the kind of products you offer. And then it becomes a self-defeating 
circle. So if people come and they go into a bookstore and they don't see books that speak to them, then they're maybe not going to buy as many books. But, you know, you have to put a product there that people want. There's two things that this reminds me of. There was that Project Greenlight episode where Matt Damon was asked about uh, diversity. And I think the people of color directors were, or someone was there. One of the producers was like, oh, we should get this 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 duo. They're people of color. They'd be great directors. And he's like, no, we can't do it for diversity. You do diversity in the casting. So the on-camera people, that's where you get your done, not in the actual staff that's making it. And I think we're really realizing, I think a lot of people already knew that even at that time, that it's actually the people that are doing the work that can actually make the decisions and that uh, impact and create different streams of culture. And I guess my question now is the, the publishing industry isn't going to change overnight. This is going to be a long and slow process, probably. Uh, they could probably do it. And I don't know how fast the publish. that's books. You got to turn a page that takes forever. But the, <laughs> I think the idea that at least the question I want to know as as an Iranian guy just trying to be a good ally, what does allyship look like if you're in the publishing industry? If you're in there now and you know something's wrong. What does allyship look like? And maybe this is a question for Karen, but maybe Marcella, from what you're you're seeing, what can uh, allyship look like for those folks? I think Karen should take it. She was in the trenches more recently than I was. I can talk about based on my reporting, but you were in there until really recently. Yeah, a couple of things. Just because somebody, all skin folk aren't, can folk um there there's a a a large number not lisa lucas uh not tracy sherrod but there are a large number of black-faced editors who are just as disconnected from blackness maybe more Mm. so than some ally white editors and i've had again 35 editors in my life and Mm -hmm. you know i've worked with uh some black but they were not empowered Right. So so they weren't willing to go to the mat for certain things because they were also afraid. We've talked about this even with going to Starbucks and going through the drive through and I'm waiting too long in line. And the white manager is like, here's a drink on us. And I waited longer the next day and the black manager didn't give me a free drink, even though I waited longer. And someone called up and said maybe she didn't feel empowered because even though we have these positions, we don't feel like. We can do all of the things because we know where the lines are, right? We know that you can't make waves because that's, you know, if you make people uncomfortable, then they get rid of you as opposed to the privilege of whiteness, which allows you to fight. So I've had white editors fight for things that a black editor wouldn't because they did not have the empowerment to do that. So there's a there's a nuance, you know, uh, answer, Cena. I think Simon Schuster now has a black woman, I think, at the at the top of the food chain. Actually, she's leaving now. Oh, my God. She's leaving tomorrow. Are you serious? That's her last day at Simon & Schuster. It just was announced, I think, last week. It's huge news, yeah. What It's kind of mind-blowing. Dana Kennedy. What happened? I I don't know the backstory, so I don't want to speculate in public. But, um, but yeah, so this is kind of what we're talking about. So she was in power, but now she's gone. And so... What is that going to mean? First black woman to head up, house. yeah, is is leaving, Simon and she's only did two two years. But it, I picked Simon and Schuster because I had deals teed up at Random House and, and other places because of Richard Simon 
Carly Simon's dad, that he was married to Henneman, who was a civil rights activist. I did all of the research, which probably 90 percent of people working at Simon & Schuster doesn't know. And I felt like the foundation of this thing was rooted in justice and fighting for the rights of the little person. So I wanted to be a part of that if I was going to choose an imprint to be a part of. But you, you fill it up with people who are chasing dollars. And when Snooki got a book deal, Snooki from mm. Jersey Shore, at, at my same imprint, I said, I can't stay here because I don't know that Snooki could read. They gave an imprint to um, Lil Baby and Lil Wayne. I know they're not reading. You gave them Donald Goins. And I'm like, I know they don't know what to do with this. And I was right. They're not literary people. So when we start giving book imprints whoa, to whoa, people who whoa. can't read, I said it. Y'all can at me. Unbelievable. Now we're setting Snooki the table. The Peace what? Prize. Unbelievable. That's you know, ironically, Snooki Snooki got money to go speak more money than Toni Morrison to go speak at Rutgers University. I'll never forget this because a friend of mine was oh, going there, and she was, and they, there was a big, you know, protest. How are you giving Snooki from Jersey Shore more money than Toni Motherfucking Morrison? Our, our, we're so twisted. But to your point, as as a writer in this industry, these books with people with platforms, Marcella. And now the platform is, you know, anti-racism and, and you know, all of, all of this race stuff. Now, I don't know if it's changing the paradigm because the people who need to read this stuff aren't reading it. What what else? What did you find that you couldn't put in this article? And we're talking with Marcella Valdez and you can follow her at Valdez Marcella one uh, L on the Twitter's New York Times magazine writer. What di- what couldn't you put in or what didn't make it that was fascinating? Yeah, I don't think it's about not being able to. It's just about how many, how much you can fit in a certain number of magazine pages. And but there's a lot of stories that I heard. I mean, to your point about willful ignorance, I spoke with one woman who worked as an editorial assistant, and she got tired of hearing her boss speak about how black people don't read. Her mother is was a college professor. She knew um, that there was no basis of it, and she thought to herself, "Oh well." I, it's just that he doesn't know, you know, it's not mean, it's just as in joke. So she wrote up a list of great black books and best-selling books for him. She, she gave it to her boss and she told me that his response was to get another senior editor to speak to her about her insubordination. Oh my God. <laughs> that was probably in the 1990s. So not that recently, but 90s were wild, though. <laughs> no, they weren't. Yeah, <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. Um, so reading your article, there's a lot of optimism. As I mentioned, there, there are quite a few people now acquiring books that are multi-million dollar, you know, uh, putting bids in, being able to go to auction and offer money. You know, when I had my imprint, I always knew that because we were splitting uh, everything, I could not. I didn't have all of the money to put on to have the losses and the write-offs, right? Um, and I left there with a ledger where I still owed the money, even though my books made millions and millions of dollars. I was just saying to you, uh, it's the bane of my existence that they're still making money because I got a bad, you know, I, I, I negotiated a bad deal, which will never happen again. But whereas I, I get paid not, you know, off of the sales, but after the returns and everything else, whereas they get their money up front from Barnes and Noble and other places. What impact did um, Amazon and now the ability for people to publish themselves and all of these different uh, ways in which people can deliver content, both through audio and through uh, eBooks? 
what impact did that have on the decision making and publishing? Yeah, I, I don't know about the decision making, but it certainly changed the industry, both for for ways that we might think of as good for readers and other ways. I mean, the part of the problem is that publishers are really pushed in this economic market. So they thought that the digital books were going to be this kind of salvation for them because of very low production cost. But then, of course, places like Amazon insisted on making them a lot cheaper than regular books. And so and to take bigger percentages for selling them, for example, when you read on the Kindle, you know, you're they're paying a percentage over to Kindle too. And so the profits ended up getting slimmer uh, for publishers than they expected with the digital book. But on the other hand, the digital book has opened the new era of self-publishing and the rise of a lot of independent publishers that have um, been able to turn a profit themselves because they don't have to run printing presses. You know, They can do digital only editions of books and be successful. Your favorite, uh, what are you reading right now, Marcella Valdez? What, what, what's on your top, <laughs> your top three? I mostly read uh, for uh, projects that I'm reporting. So I hesitate to tell you because I would be telling you uh, what I'm reporting on now, okay, which I okay. can't reveal yet. All right. All right. Last year, last stuff. year. Okay. Last year, what was your favorite thing to read for fun? Um, well, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading for fun on vacation, a book recommended to me, a friend called Vladimir, which is sort of like a cross between, um, Gone Girl and the movie Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It's, a uh, sort of a, yeah. Well, Gone Girl somewhat... pissed me off. That's one book <laughs> where I hated everybody. Uh, you, you know, there's usually one character that you can... You read a whole book and you're like, I hate everybody in this book. And they all could die and I would feel nothing. But do I don't care who the killed pages? her. Yeah, I'm not, I'm saying, I don't care who killed her. I'm, I'm not giving away too much. I, you know, when I found out that, you know, when I found out what I found out, I was like, I hate everybody, all of them. Like, he, anyway, that's how I feel. So well, if it's. Can I ask though? But I, I did want to ask, do we have time? Yeah, we, yeah, we I, I did want to, I did want to ask about intellectual property. And how that is kind of spread from like the root of it is publishing. It is the book that gains traction and then it kind of gets licensed out from there. Is that something that could be an avenue? Because we've seen these, you know, huge franchises get created for generations, basically off of books. Is is there a push for more? Uh, IP basically to be developed originating in publishing from authors of color that can then be optioned uh, to other places. So it really depends on the contracts that the authors sign with their publishers. So, you know, what rights they give away to the book publisher and what rights they hold on to themselves, like movie options, audiobook options, digital book options, you know, serial options. Agents are always trying to hold on to as much as many rights as they can. If you've got a good agent, the agent is fighting to keep your movie rights for you. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you give away more rights, you get more money as an advance. So I think when an author's mm -hmm. not yet established, which I think are the kind of voices that you're talking about mostly, it's really hard for them to negotiate contracts that are to their advantage in every respect. Sometimes what they really need is a six-figure advance so they can pay off their debt and write their next book. Mm -hmm. And and that becomes the carrot, right? 
these yeah. advances because you don't look at the fine print and you don't look at the all of the things that you're giving away and forever and books are forever that's the way i you know i'm so it's so important right now to hold on to all of your things because you don't know when something's going to hit i remember when i first started at um simon and schuster they had three books that saved them that year. I think it was a Joel Osteen book. Oh. Uh, it was a Joel Osteen book. It was, uh, who did the Da Vinci Code? Uh, but no, it wasn't Da Vinci Code. It was two other books. Three books out of their whole entire list saved them that year. Oh, The Secret. Hmm. Secret sold like a billion copies. And that gave them, you know, the. but I was also, it was interesting, the guy that wrote Da Vinci, they let him go because Digital Fortress didn't sell. But then when he had Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, Digital Fortress, that Simon & Schuster owned, when that book hit, the other two became bestsellers too. So mm-hmm. you don't know when something's going to hit. Um, what For people who are listening right now that want to write, they want to get into publishing, um, it's really sexy to be black right now and to have black content, any content has, having to do with race and racism and eradicating it. Is that what you're seeing? Marcel, is it? Is it um, I'm actually hearing that that trend is slowing down. The window already. closed. I knew it was going to close. I told y'all. I told y'all that that George Floyd guilt money and the guilt window was going to close. All right, it is closing now. But we'll be seeing. I'm I'm sure many important and good books that sold, but they you know a book sells and it can come out two years later. It can come out right. you know a year later, two years later, three years later. So I think we'll be seeing. Uh, good and important books. And I think that now it's not that they're not buying books by non-white authors, but I think they're trying to diversify the subject matter, which I think might actually be a good thing if it's actually done in a thoughtful way, because, you know, one of the authors that I interviewed for this piece, part of her argument was, you know, once a writing teacher said to her, you know, you can't have a black character unless your story is about race, because otherwise it's a distraction. And that's just an awful thing as a writer, you know, to think, you know, here I am a Latina, I'm not thinking about race every single second of the day I have. So she wrote this marvelous book that's really all about love relationships and looking intimacy. And it's got people from all sorts of different colors and she's just, and ethnicities. And her thing was, I'm going to write about all these people without writing about diversity, without writing about race, but just writing about the ways they feel about each other. So I actually think that if people do that in a thoughtful way, that's actually that's actually a good thing. Yeah. Uh, the as you're the problem becomes if they don't do it thoughtfully and then they go back to the old stuff. Yeah. When I was reading Where the Crawdads Live, I didn't, I imagined the character as a black girl in this, like I imagined her, and of course, you know, the, the way it's written is so masterfully done that you could imagine till you figure out that she's not, but it it didn't matter, you know, like that wasn't central to the story. And if people write their their stories, just as a matter of fact, like we were talking about Ms. Marvel before you came in and how, you know, I got Pakistani culture and, and music and history in this thing wrapped around a superhero without it being too heavy handed, even the, you know, the glyphs and all that. I thought that was well done. You know, maybe there's a Persian scene, a Persian, you know, maybe you can write something because I'm sure that there's something there. 
All I had was like the Shahnameh, like the Book of Kings. I have like old, tall tales. Like the Iliad is basically the equivalent of what I grew up with. My dad reading those stories to me. And they're not like light stories. They're all like someone was convinced to murder this. It's very dramatic. My people are too dramatic, I think. That's what I'm saying. Maybe there's opportunity for you to write as a Persian guy just a story. Love it. All right. Yeah. Do you do the uh, New York Times bestsellers list, Marcella? Are you responsible for that? No, the books is a whole different department. I work for the magazine. So. All right. Now. uh, But you don't need any help getting on there. No, I don't. No. (laughs) You've been on there many times. (laughs) But I I want people to understand you don't have to have sold a whole lot of books to get on that list. And I think people think, oh, it's millions of books. And sometimes it's not even sales because how do you really calculate? Like there are people who sell books that aren't sold through the normal channels so I, I have actually written about this uh as a reporter for the washington post and it's actually about rate of sales that's why pre-ordering mm. books is so valuable so if you get you know ten thousand people to pre-order your book and that means that on the date of on sale date all those books count in that one week even if they were bought over you know three months beforehand and that can really help push you onto a bestseller list so bestsellers aren't measuring the total number of copies sold they're measuring essentially like what speed the book is selling is it is it 60 miles an hour is it 40 miles an hour but you can have a book that goes 20 miles an hour because 20 miles an hour for a decade and sells more than the book that went you know Fast. 60 miles an hour for for three weeks i have two number one bestsellers one sold like seventy five thousand units the other one sold ten thousand units they were number one when they came out um and it just you just don't know that particular week if there's a whole lot of books that are popular or no books that are popular you can have a ten thousand uh unit sale and be number one in that particular especially if it's like self-help or something like this is all trickery out there um but do people anyway i won't ask you that i won't ask you that um the 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 next big trend um as far as you're concerned for people who are listening uh to get a book deal without an agent how how easy is that getting a book deal without an agent is extremely hard extremely hard um so laura warrell um who i write about in this piece she was either rejected or ignored by 49 agents before she found the agent that sold her novel. But then when that novel was with that agent, it was sold in a five or six way auction. So the agents can help set up those kind of interest and timing to help you with that. It's very hard to get um, an editor's attention without an agent these days. Okay, I I may need to have an agent on as well. Well, Marcella, thank you for uh, coming through. I appreciate it. Uh, those of you who read the New York Times Magazine, you want to check her out. Uh, Marcella Valdez, Valdez Marcella on Twitter is where you can reach her. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate thank it. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been fun. Right. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.